I'm Jody Butts. Welcome to the 2020 Network presented by Interact. Today, I speak with Shelley Ambrose, the executive director and publisher of The Walrus. Shelley started her career as a reporter for the Globe and Mail and Windsor Star before serving for more than a decade as a producer for CBC Radio's Morningside and later for the Pamela Wallen Show. After three years in public affairs at the Canadian Consulate in New York, organizing media and events and building the Canadian brand, she returned to Canada in 2006 and took the helm of the walrus. Shelley has announced she will be stepping down in June of this year. Thank you for joining me, Shelley. Thank you for having me. Okay, so let's start with talking about creativity. So I uh, have been a lifelong uh, fan of fashion, and I was reading some words from uh, Mark Jacobs and Kenneth Easy, and these were in vogue, and they uh, were commenting how even in dark times, creativity can be a beacon, um, that creativity never stops, and that it's essential, um, and that it'll always live. Uh, we've seen, you know, singing from balconies and beautiful art projects. What what are the cool things that, that you're seeing and what are your reflections uh, on creativity in the time of COVID-19? Well, I think it's fascinating that you say and they say and many of us say that creativity and arts are essential because, you know, of course, I believe that. But right now, when we talk about essential and non-essential, we're hearing about a very different group of essential, essential workers, essential services, um, which is sort of food, water, health, housing, um, those sorts of things. But I think in that mix is very much what is essential to someone, any individual's well-being is also, um, it's it's not just physical, it's emotional and spiritual. It's not just financial either. And so I, I do believe that these things are essential. And I think a lot of the stuff that I'm seeing, because I'm um, wor- working virtually as everybody is, is what people are doing digitally because it's so hard to come together or Yes, you can go out on your balcony, but it's what's happening digitally. So I joined a, a, a thing that's happening in Canada every Wednesday night right now called Kitchen Party, which is uh, put on by a bunch of uh, people, a lot of musicians, but also other people like George Strombolopoulos, but then Jim Cuddy or whatever. And they don't ask you to give them money for something, but it's it's music and conversation in support of restaurants and restaurant workers. The idea is that you you order a takeout meal from a local restaurant in your community and go and pick it up and bring it home and then turn on kitchen party from, you know, in the evening, it's one hour, 8 p.m. my time, um, Eastern Standard Time. And then, and you join all these people across the country and listen to all this music. And uh, there's a scroll, a comment scroll along the side where you're, uh, to meant to tag the restaurant and talk about the meal that you got and who you're supporting and why. And it's it's this and there's a lot of these things, but I love this one because the idea is it's it's like what Margaret Atwood said in Time magazine this week. The I the idea is is that you you need to think about the things that you would like to um to be here, the things that you hope will still exist once the pandemic is over 
um, and support those things now. So, of course, healthcare workers and restaurant workers, but also arts organizations and the things so that you will still be able to hear music and see art and go to museums and all of those things. So uh, all of the, the things that are coming together to support, yes, artists are supporting healthcare workers and communities, but the reverse is what I'm finding really creative is how people are finding ways to support um, the things we want to be there when this is over. That's lovely. Thank you for sharing that. Um, you have organized thousands of events over the course of your career. Are you going in any type of event withdrawal or has digital uh, provided um, a nice uh, solution to the events gap? Personally, I have organized or been to more events than most normal humans. So I, I actually don't mind the break from live events, to be honest. Uh, and, you know, even when at the Walrus, when we started the Walrus Talks in 2011, there weren't a lot of content events. There were galas, there were music concerts, um, but there weren't a lot of content events. And I think over the last few years, you know, live events and gatherings of people around ideas and talks and conversations have really exploded. So it's been pretty competitive for for people's time. You know, I I always say that our actual greatest non-renewable resource is time. So there was a, a big uh, fight for people's time. And I think that's probably still true in the virtual world. And I really, um, I'm, I admire all of the creative ways in which people are still trying to deliver uh, great content um, in talks and debates and conversations and music and all of those things. However, um, I do believe that the reason live events and gatherings um, were so important is that, and convening people uh, to come together is so important is I, I think we realize that how much people crave to be together. So I'm not sure that the digital uh, virtual event world is going to um, provide that, that kind of coming together that people actually crave. I was saying how much I loved your kitchen party example, and that's an example of the arts and cultural community supporting other type, you know, other sectors that that are hurt by COVID. But I was wondering if I could get your thoughts about um, some of the policy responses that that we're seeing in support of arts and culture, and, I, and I'll just list a few uh, off the top. So. 500 million to the sector for wage support and those organizations struggling with cash flow. Uh, creators continuing to receive uh, royalty payments um, eligible for the CERB, um, as well as uh, people who are earning less than $1,000 a month. Um, and uh, the Heritage Ministry in Canada uh, are still going to flow grants for events, uh, even if they're canceled. What are you hearing in the community? Does the community feel supported? Is this the right policy response? My perspective, uh, coming from the, the walrus perspective, is interesting because 
uh, we we are not uh, one of these things. So we are not considered, for instance, from Canada Council as an arts and culture organization. Um, and we are not technically a small business. We do have a media enterprise and we do support writers, obviously, but we're a charitable not-for-profit. And as you know, uh, not-for-profit journalism um, there's not a lot of not-for-profit journalism in Canada. There's no history in Canada of supporting not-for-profit journalism. Most of our journalism is for-profit. So there are all these different things. So when when the the first uh, wage subsidy relief fund came down came out, and we we looked to see if if we would fit into that because historically aid to small business does not. Um, does not include not-for-profits and does not include the charitable sector. So we're always looking for whether we're explicitly mentioned um, uh, or if we're just kind of omitted. So uh, a lot of smaller arts and culture not-for-profit charitable organizations that that use freelance or self-employed writers or musicians or choreographers or all of these different arts classes are often kind of not included in this sort of broad thing. So the short answer is it was great to see that uh, not-for-profits were included when organizations were mentioned in, in not just small business. And in, and in the CERB, it was great to see that self-employed people, uh, which include freelancers and, and arts people, were also included. And that there was some tacit understanding, which is unusual, that these are um, perpetual gig workers before the word gig was ever mentioned, and they do not have a predictable income. And so even looking at someone's tax return one year over another year doesn't do anything really, and they're not salaried. And um, so to have that kind of um, flexibility and recognition that there are all kinds of people that make their living or not uh, in very different ways was heartening. Um, yes. So that, that was good. Yeah. I think it's been interesting. I think we're, um, sort of beginning to better understand ourselves, uh, through COVID-19. I mean, would I prefer there's no COVID-19? Yeah, of course. Uh, but I do feel like we're understanding how people, all the varieties of ways that people work, um, across uh, and getting to better understand all the different sectors and their interdependencies and all the different ways that we engage uh, people uh, to produce, you know, to create output. And we're learning it uh, through, you know, coverage of some of these emergency supports by people raising their hands saying, hey, I don't I, uh, I don't, you know, I'm a bit of a square peg in the, in the round hole of, of this subsidy. Can, can we help this? And, and I must say, across all levels of government, it's been quite impressive the way uh, government has been iterating through, through, the, through this process. Well, and one of the things that I find fascinating is, you know, for a long time now, people um, have looked at politicians who changed their mind and and made that a negative. Um, 
saying, oh, you said one thing this week and then you said another thing this week. But what what we're seeing now, I think, are politicians, especially the prime minister or some premiers, especially Premier Ford, um, where people where they're saying, I just learned this. I now understand that I'm you know, I am listening to experts. Uh, I'm and not myself. I'm, you know, my, my own little brain. I'm listening to medical experts. I'm listening to business leaders. I'm listening to innovators. I'm listening to people who run arts organizations about what they need and how it really works. And, and they keep modifying um, these relief programs and modifying these policies. And that's a huge step forward for a conversation between our elected people and our citizenry. And that has been really amazing to watch. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think, I think it's creating better policy. Like it's a win-win. <laughs> yes, I, I, I think that's true. Of course, it, you know, the, it, it's, I don't believe personally, this is me speaking just for me. I don't believe that we can expect governments to do everything. I mean, this is, this is an extraordinary situation that we're in and we all need a government that supports every Canadian and farmers and everything, everything that we're doing. But in a larger context, um, there's a lot of things that the, the government can do also to allow or let or encourage Canadians individually to do more. So if the more the federal government can make it easier for people to donate and get tax relief of their own from donating and encourage Canadians to support all kinds of, of uh, organizations that they care about individually. Um, I mean, there's a movement right now with a, a bunch, I know that you have uh, spoke to um, Bruce McDonald at Imagine Canada and he and a, a bunch of people, including Mike Peterson, who's a great guy, have this uh, idea that the campaign really that they're putting out there that one percent, if every Canadian gave one percent of their pre-tax income to charity, it would be, mean billions of dollars in in. Um, now, this wouldn't help small business, but it would help not-for-profit, charitable, arts, culture, environmental, uh, conservation, poverty, homelessness, whatever charity you want. Um, you know, if that what that would be billions of billions of dollars that wouldn't have to come directly from government. And right now, only twenty percent of Canadians give to charity, and that's scary. Hopefully the conversation isn't just what the government is doing and we're saying that's great, but more Canadians are realizing that they also have a role to play in supporting uh, not-for-profit and charities in their communities and in the country. Because essentially what's been happening to date is charities are meant to be efficient. Uh, even the walrus were meant to be efficient. You're not really allowed to carry a nest egg. It's hard to raise extra money, but it's at the cost of being resilient. And this um, pandemic and this situation is proving that a lot of businesses, but certainly not for profits and charities are not resilient. And yet, how essential we're really understanding uh, all of these um, organizations um, truly are. 
and, you know, focusing um, a little bit um, on uh, publishers. Uh, obviously, The Walrus is unique as a, as a not-for-profit uh, publisher of a magazine. But, you know, we're really learning, you know, misinformation is a, is a public health problem. Uh, that that needs uh, to be tackled and is really, you know, essential uh, to our success in flattening the curve. Misinformation has been around, you know, since before Roman times. So misinformation uh, is real. The, the, the ability of social media and digital platforms to spread um, misinformation is, of course, the thing that's, that's different. Um, and I, I think, I mean, one of the things that we used to say at the Walrus is, you know, you know, we, we make journalism about Canada and its place in the world. And then um, maybe eight or nine years ago, we used to have to say we make fact-based journalism about Canada and its place in the world. And, and we used to, journalism used to mean fact-based, but now it doesn't. You have to say fact-based. And now we don't say fact-based anymore. Now we say fact-based checked we uh, so a lot of organizations say they're fact-based but they're not fact-checked and we're actually fact-checked which is of course expensive and for-profit journalism doesn't spend that kind of money like we do but um that's just so i think that the thing about misinformation disinformation all of the things that are that are out there is we have a lack of media literacy, people consuming um, their news on non-news platforms uh, don't either don't have the, um, well, they either don't have the education to be able to sort it out, but uh, they also just don't seem to have the tools or recognize the tools where you can tell what is a trusted news source and how you know what is a trusted uh, news source and and how you should, um, you know, your, your red flag should go up. Um, I, I'm not sure that it's possible to stop all mis and disinformation. I do note that Facebook and and other um, uh, they're trying. I'm not I'm not sure it's going to work. I'm not sure they're trying hard enough. I'm not sure they're trying everything. But I think they are. You know, they they have the Facebook has this new messenger hub that's supposed to help users identify false information. But it it's happen it's not just on Facebook. I mean, if you watch television news, depending on what broadcaster or program or host you are following, they're having a million so-called experts on. And just because you have doctor in front of your name doesn't mean you're the right kind of doctor to talk about the pandemic. It doesn't mean you have any expertise in the thing that you're talking about. But I keep thinking about, like, you know, Donald Trump called his son Baron, but that doesn't mean he is one. So I, I, I find that what is a trusted source? How can you tell? And when you're when you're listening to um, to talking heads, you have to be able to sort out the difference between opinion and expertise and um and and what uh, and how to figure out what to think instead of uh how to feel
Joan Donovan had uh, had a really impressive, passionate piece uh, in the periodical Nature, where um, you know the the sum total of it was that you know she's just not sure we've actually uh, developed the right tools yet. You know, even since our awareness was raised, you know, from the Cambridge Analytica schedule, uh, scandal and you know Russian interference. Um, and, you know, in this piece, she kind of breaks down how the uh, hydroxychloroquine um, faux cure story kind of took hold. And it started with, um, you know, respected people, but not actual clinicians um, spreading uh, the data of a very tiny study. And then next thing you know, it's on Fox News. And next thing you know, the president of the United States um is talking about it. So, so I'm not sure we figured out the right tools yet, how to, you know, prevent, um, as you say, not, not, not just the fact of disinformation or misinformation, but it's like quick scaling and spreading, um, you know, across our population. Now, different governments are taking different, um, approaches and you know here at Canada 2020 we try to be as wonkish as as we can be and <laughs> so you know I, I try to do a quick scan of what's happening in the world and the British government has set up a rapid response team to correct uh, false information up to 70 incidents a week uh, are being identified and resolved uh, you know there it was floated here in Canada perhaps legislation creating a new crime uh, prohibiting pandemic mis misinformation. Taiwan, which has had such a great um, flattening curve experience, uh, issues fines up to 100,000 US dollars for the spread of fake news. And, uh, and here in Canada as well, the Canadian Heritage Ministry uh, introduced $3 million in grants to prevent misinformation. Um, so these are all neat ideas. Um, and, you know, hopefully, you know, uh, hearkening back to our earlier comments, we can start iterating around some of these tools until, until we get the, the, the right uh, suite uh, in place. Um, have you seen, um, you know, what, what, what's your sense of this? You know, you're, you, you've been involved in publishing, uh, you know, throughout your career this is as you say not a new problem uh, per se although the scale of spread is is a, is definitely um, a new addition to the challenge uh, what where, where do you think we're going on this and and how do, how do we get a better handle I'm very skeptical of um, I, I mean I would love to be able to find lots of people who do stupid things, especially harmful things. I do think we have laws in place about libel and slander and hate speech and all sorts of things that are already there. The, the challenge with uh, creating a fine or a law around dissert or misinformation, especially harmful information, is that you is figuring out who decides. I mean, in an extreme example, you know, it was the Chinese authorities who decided that the doctor in Wuhan who tried to tell people about coronavirus, they essentially called him fake news and closed him down. So it once you've got a, a law in place, like the, it's all about 
how that law is used, how it can be misused, and who is the arbiter of separating facts from fiction or separating opinion from expertise or separating uh, something where someone's raising a flag or is a whistleblower with someone who is um, spreading a dangerous lie. And so that I, I, I am not equipped to make the policy around that, but as in all things, there are unintended consequences of of those kinds of laws, then they can be used by the wrong people or the wrong organization or the wrong uh, political party um, uh, on any given day to do something that is quite unintended. Well, thanks for your thoughts on that. Before I let you go, I want us to have a bit of a conversation about the state of publishing. Um, So you joined the Walrus in 2006, and it, it had been the Walrus had been publishing for for um, for a few years prior to that, and really got its start um, in and around the time Saturday Night Magazine um, ceased to to exist. Um, so, you know, where are we today? So, so taking COVID out of it. So, let's say, you know, on you know beginning of January, where did you think publishing was? Um, how was it doing? Uh, over the course of your career, and what and and how do you see um, magazine publishing in the future? Is its future bright? Is it challenged? Is the light bulb flickering? How, what what's your call, Shelley? Well, in two thousand and six, when I started working at the Walrus, and all the Walrus was at the time was a magazine, um, which was hard enough. The founders then uh, took a hard look at the business model for journalism in Canada and and a lot of journalism around the world, not just magazine publishing, but all journalism was the business model was it was funded by advertising, period, over. Advertising paid for everything, even if you had a subscription to a newspaper or a magazine, your subscription really barely paid for the paper, so readers have never really paid for the cost of journalism. That was always borne by advertising. And uh, when the when the market fell apart in 2008, uh, the first dollars always to go are marketing and advertising dollars. And so the advertising revenue just went off a cliff. And since 2008, the business model has been broken for um, all magazine and newspaper publishing. Um, And then at the same time, it was this double-headed dragon. Advertising, traditional advertising revenue disappeared um, at the Walrus, 1.4 million annually just disappeared overnight. Um, And at the same time, these Uh, new platforms called Google and Facebook started garnering enormous audiences and um, and that advertising dollars followed those enormous audiences. I don't like it when people say that Facebook and Google stole advertising from us. They didn't steal it. Advertisers chose to uh, advertise at Google and Facebook, including, by the way, a lot of Canadian 
corporations and a lot of Canadian advertisers, including our own federal government, which spends a lot of money on advertising every year. It all went to foreign-owned um, digital platforms. So um, that happened. So what happened at the Walrus, because we're not-for-profit, we have the ability to raise money in other ways, we um, upped our philanthropy drive. We took in more donations. We started events. We turned uh, corporate advertisers into corporate sponsors. We diversified our revenue in any way that we could to stay alive. For-profit journalism didn't really have that option or weren't that nimble. And that's why we have a crisis, the crisis in newspapers and and. Um, in journalism that we have. Um, now, during COVID, I mean, there's always another, like the light bulb's still flickering, but there's always another blow. Right now, I mean, we, we, we do, uh, we have an enormous digital audience for our journalism, but we also still have a print magazine and newsstands are in places like airports and train stations and ferry terminals and bookstores and they're all closed right now so all all publications that are sold on newsstands are are in dire straits and whatever advertising they had left like we have left is gone now too because the print audience is gone but also advertisers are very wary right now of seeming out of touch, luxury goods don't want to advertise, no point in advertising travel, there's no airlines or rental cars or hotels or just think of all restaurants. Like So I, even the advertising that was left has now disappeared. Um, the federal government has, has said they're going to spend $30 million on COVID awareness uh, advertising for Canadian for Canadians to see, but it we're not sure that they're going to choose us or if they're going to choose Google and Facebook for that money. So that's um, we're not sure that that that's going to help. Um, journalism has never had more of an, uh, a bigger audience, but uh, it's just where does the revenue come from is always the question. And so I think the answer uh, is a version of what The Guardian is doing uh, or other outlets that ha have a membership where uh, readers are more than readers. They're actually part of a community. I, I feel like the wall walrus community is like this, that they're part of a community that supports um, the work of of journalism and and that that it is in the public interest, but it, it's really also in the member interest, and so they support it to build you know a better Canada or a better world or a better informed citizenry. I think that's the model that the Walrus has spiritually right now, and will move more more structurally into that model going forward. But I I do think that is the beacon and which means it's the community that's the beacon not the creators of the journalism itself yeah i think that's uh, very well said i mean i think all predictions are that covid-19 is actually going to accelerate uh, the drop in ad revenues for traditional uh, publishers 
um, rather than, even though so many more eyeballs are on uh, traditional news and, and consuming journalism, it's probably not going to have uh, an impact on the, on the longer term uh, trends. Um, and, you know, very interesting example that, that, that you're giving um, of, the, of the Guardian and membership models. Um, I noticed in Australia, you know, through this, they're continuing to, to legislate like so many parliamentary democracies. And, you know, they had this landmark inquiry that was published, you know, mid-year in 2019, um, where they found Google and Facebook had become, you know, sort of the unavoidable trading partners for Australian news media businesses uh, who wanted to uh, reach audiences online. And now, you know, Australia is looking to become the first country in the world to uh, require payment for content from, you know, the Googles and the Facebooks. I mean, so that's going to be a very interesting uh, pilot, if you will, to or experiment um, to, to watch. But I think the trends around not-for-profits are, are a lot easier, or sorry, for membership models are, are a lot easier it's an easier pivot than, you know, seeing a complete reorganization um, around the revenue model um, for, for content. Do you, so that was a very long uh, time for me to be talking, and I don't normally talk that much uh, during this podcast. But um, what I wanted to ask you is, is so, so, so where do you see publishing going in Canada? Do you think it's going to be, you know, pivots to nonprofits, pivots to membership models, um, or do or do you think we'll see you know kind of continued calls for for government uh, support um, of uh, traditional journalism? Well, that's a very complicated question. So, uh, but I will uh, I'll, I'll just start with sort of the Google and Facebook issue because it it is a real issue, and um, if the advertising supported model of journalism is broken, which it is. And if all of those advertising dollars are going, uh, 99% of them to the Google and Facebooks of the world, which they are, then there is a relationship, I believe, between uh, Google and Facebook and traditional journalism. It's not that Google and Facebook owes us it's that Google and Facebook uh, should, I believe, figure out a way or have some responsibility to uh, support traditional journalism because as they continue to say over and over and over again, we're not publishers, we're just a platform. That's their primary defense. Um, there are a lot of people that believe they are publishers, but they don't actually create anything. They don't create original journalism. So it would be, I believe, in their best interests to support their communities by ensuring that there is a healthy journalistic uh, public interest journalism um, that exists in their communities, which, and by the way, their communities are the entire world, um, that, that that exists. And I, so I think there are ways that they could step up and engage um, that they have not done. And that's very, very disappointing. So I think their role is beyond um, making sure that, that users um, 
aren't telling lies or, or spreading false information on their platforms. I think it is their civic duty to ensure that there is an alternative for their community that is well supported financially. And I'm not sure what that could look like, but I wish that that was um, top of mind for them. The other is that, um, you know, I think more Canadians just to stay at home here have realized for a long time that, you know, we're a large country with a small number of people. And if we want to hear, it's not necessarily just our own stories. I don't want to be provincial about it, but to, to see the world through a Canadian lens, then we need to be able to create our own stories about Canada and our place in the world. And to do that, we need to support our own journalism by reading it, by advertising in it, by supporting it, by membership, by donating to it. And, um, you know, a cover story at The Walrus, our, our cover story that's out right now um, by Kevin Patterson called Anatomy of a Pandemic, that costs over $35,000. One story. That's the research, the writer, the editors, the copy editors, the fact checkers, the everything. $35,000, one story. So if we're going to have that kind of journalism, it needs to be, it needs to be supported um, and, and not, not because not because I'm going to say because we you have to support us or it will die it 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 you have to support it so it's here for you well that's well said Shelly you're in the last couple months of your time uh, at the walrus and you're getting ready to hand the reins over to Jennifer Hollett how are you feeling about this moment Oh my gosh, you should be asking her how she's feeling. Um, uh, let's suggest that I'm, it, it's a very strange time to onboard a new executive director and do it all virtually. But she she is, uh, well, first of all, she's stellar. She's very smart. And she's not cowed by any of this. Um, she's drinking from the fire hose. But in a way, I've come to think that the timing is actually perfect. I mean, obviously, we don't want COVID. We don't want to be in the middle of a pandemic. But here we are. And Jennifer Hollett is not only the same age I was when I took over 100 years ago, but she comes from a different era, a different time, has a different skill set, and a different way of looking at the world. Uh, digital, virtual, uh, all of these things are, are in her DNA. And so I sort of see my job as uh, onboarding her as into this is the history, the traditional um, business model of the walrus. This is our, uh, these are our donors. This is our community. This is the staff. This is how it works. This is how it's always worked. And she is perfectly positioned to say, great, I'm going to take all that and look at how it needs to work in the future. And she will be the one implementing the membership model. She will be the one figuring out how to best serve the community um, in the way that people consume things now. So I'm feeling really good about it. Well, thank you for everything you've done, Shelley Ambrose, including speaking with me today and sharing your thoughts on creativity, misinformation, and publishing in the time of COVID-19. Merci. Well, thank you very much. And you're doing a great job. More of this.